What's happening, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to episode six of the Carbide Podcast with Joey Hollywood Hallstrom. If you're a diehard Articat fan, you've likely heard of him or heard his name thrown around a bit over the years. Joey's career with Articat spanned over three decades, holding a number of key roles that directly related to Cat's continued success on the track, on the trail, and most importantly, in the boardroom. Despite all of this, Joey's still just as humble as can be. I was a little nervous jumping on the phone with him, as you might be able to tell, but he's still just as passionate about the sport as ever and is always down to talk sleds if you give him the chance. Please enjoy our discussion. Welcome back, everybody, to the Carbide Podcast. This is episode six. I appreciate you tuning in. Our guest tonight, if you're any history lover of snowcross or snowmobile racing and you're a fan of Articat, I promise you know who this guy is. But for those unfamiliar, he served as the Articat race manager, snowmobile product manager. He's also an inductee in the Snowmobile Hall of Fame, and he's an all-around cool guy, Mr. Joey Hallstrom. How are we doing, Joey? I'm doing really good. Well, yeah, I appreciate you taking the time, and I'm looking forward to, to diving into your career tonight. It's going to be fun. Looking forward to it. So both personally and professionally, you've been on sleds pretty much your whole life, but where did it start for you? I'm sure it was, I'm sure it was humble beginnings at one point in time, right? You know, it was, uh, my father, uh, Dennis Hallstrom, we, at the time, my mom and dad actually moved down from Thief River Falls to Anoka, Minnesota, like a lot of people did in the sixties to go, you know, bigger and better things look for work. And um, I was seven years old and my dad went and bought a 1968 Panther. I can still remember the dealership outside of Anoka, Minnesota, right on Highway 10. And uh, he took me to the Anoka County Fairgrounds and we, you know, unloaded off this little single place trailer and uh, I remember watching him drive it around there and then uh, he let me take it for a spin. And I can still remember that moment in time over 50 plus years ago. And uh, boy, ever since then, you know, like a lot of people, I was hooked. Yeah, I can imagine. I've talked to some of my other guests too and just the, the sledding culture back then, it was, it was very different to what it is now. You know, a lot of the, the average guys had sleds. The market was so much bigger. The racers were almost like celebrities. It was just, it was a different draw back then for people to get on snowmobiles, you know? Yeah. And you know, since I've been in the industry so long and I studied a lot of the numbers and the history, you know, you look at not only Articat, but the whole industry through 67, 68, 69, that the industry kept doubling. And uh, nobody could get around on snow really prior to that. So when you get in the late 60s and these new vehicles are out there, um, people started to get some money and it just went crazy. So did you grow up kind of trail riding or did you jump into racing immediately? Kind of what was your what was your story there? Well, um wasn't long after that, uh, that my, uh, you know, kind of because Arctic was growing so fast, my mom and dad decided to move back to Thief River Falls. So that was 1969. My dad took a job 
driving semi, delivering Articats, picking up parts for Articat. And I can still remember the white freight liner. It was black and white and said Arctic Enterprises. We've got pictures of it. And it was so cool listening to dad talk about going to Sherbrooke, Quebec and Drummondville mm -hmm. and places like to get the JLO engines. And they used to get the the wheels for the skid frame frame from PPD, uh, which still, I believe, builds wheels for skids today. Um, and of course, we had the Panther here where we lived. Uh, but one trip, when dad came home, he surprised my sister and I, my little sister, there was a snow pony Ooh. in the entryway of our house. And I tell you, that was, again, a memorable time coming in the door. And here's this little snowmobile, about the size of a, like a 200 is now. Um, and it was just remarkable. Um, <laughs> it broke down a lot. It was hard to keep <laughs> running. I remember the throttle would stick on it. But talk about... Uh, you know, just to highlight as a kid to have something like that. And, um, you know, and at that time too, besides riding the sleds, dad now and then would get a chance to take the snowmobiles to the I-5, the Winnipeg race, to Eagle River, to Ironwood. And when he would come home with the truck, a lot of sleds were on the flatbed trailer and he'd park it in the, the farmyard. And I would go out on that trailer and I would sit on every one of those snowmobiles and think I was driving them. And uh, there was a lot of dreaming when you're an eight-year-old boy sitting on those uh, really cool looking uh, black and purple Articats. That's where that's where the dream starts, right? That's where you start, start oh, envisioning yeah. winning races and, and getting the checkered flag. That's where it all starts. Yeah, it... Uh... And I still remember when he brought all them sleds back from Eagle River, uh, you know, the names were painted on the hoods. And uh, one time he uh, he got a sled that, uh, I think the gentleman's name was Kermit Malberg, and uh, he ran the Winnipeg. And uh, dad got to unload it. And I remember we drove it around the farm and uh, it blew a lot of belts. <laughs> nice, nice. So yeah, you know, the the spark was lit. Um, I would draw snowmobiles. My sister always said, you know, I'd be on the couch and playing with little ones, snowmobiles and making noises like them. And she says, man, you must have put a million miles on like that. So that's where it all started. That's that's awesome. I, I, I love to hear kind of the stories of, of most people's kind of first experience with snowmobiles because at the end of the day, that's still how most of us feel about them. We still get that kind of feeling, even in, as we get older with, with sleds and it just takes us back to the childhood. So in my mind, that's, that's the coolest part about snowmobiles to this day. Yep, definitely. So what year did you actually finally start racing then? And, and what kind of pushed you to, to start? Cause it sounds like you just, you wanted to, as soon as you, as soon as you could. Um, you know, I, I got the opportunity, uh, dad had a good friend in Thief River um, that actually he had helped 
Chester Bowman, who was one of the factory Team Arctic cross country racers. Uh, a gentleman's name was Harvey Hansen. And Harvey had a long background of snowmobiles in the 60s and 70s. He helped Chester and his brother Garfield Bowman on their snowmobiles in like the mid 70s. And then uh, he got asked to be a mechanic for another gentleman that was working at Articat in 1978. And he asked dad, he said, does your boy want to come over and ride this? And so I would go over there after dinner in supper time and Harvey would have me take the machine out. I would actually go to the Arctic cat test strip and I would make runs up and down and I'd have to come back and tell them what the speed and what the tachometer were mm -hmm. doing. And I learned when he would make clutching changes, it, how it accelerated, how did it, sh you know, shift through its pattern and, it was a really a good learning experience. And of course, Harvey knew I was foaming at the mouth to race. And uh, lo and behold, uh, 1979, he bought a cross-country LT grape and uh, sent me out on the circuit. My dad would put it in the back of a 68 Ford pickup. And away we went. And of course, the highlight was running the Winnipeg mm -hmm. race. Um, I think in 1979, the sled, I believe it got 3,500 miles racing on it Ooh. because all the races were 200 miles mm -hmm. in length, Park Rapids, the Winnipeg race, the Sox Center. I mean, there was just gobs of them. And, um, you know, and I was only, I was 18. I just turned 18 mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, really got, uh, you know, I never won any of the big races because I was pretty young, but I did good. I, uh, I think the first year in Winnipeg, I finished 21st. Of course, there was a couple hundred entries. Uh, but, but what Harvey really liked is I didn't bring back beat up broken equipment. Mm. And uh, he always said, you know, you, you drive it smart. And he really appreciated and liked it. And uh, I seen that years later when I became race manager, you know, the fast guys don't destroy their equipment. Uh, usually the, you know, the Kirk Hibberts and the Barad Pakes and the Sturgeons and that, when they finished a race, their sleds were perfect. So how many years did you, did you continue racing at that point? I mean, well, um, you know, we kind of had a hiccup 1981. Uh, it didn't snow. Articat went, they shut the doors and really thought that, wow, <laughs> what's going on here? Uh, my dream has been flushed down the toilet. You know, the, my God, my world's mm -hmm. coming to an end. There's no more Arctic cat. People are leaving town. Um, you know, so it was a tough mm -hmm. time. The winters were pathetic. Mm -hmm. There was no snow and it was warm. So um, about 1983, uh, I kept in touch with Roger Skyme because mm -hmm. Roger, you know, he knew I was really wanting to race and I, and I, and I had a lot of interest in Articat. Roger told me, he said, we're going to get this company going again, Joey, hang tight. When you get done with college, you come see me. So I did that. Uh, I got wrapped up my schooling in 1984. And um, I asked Roger if I could do my internship 
at Artco mm -hmm. with, you know, the new company that got started up. And um, it just, it took off from there. I went full-time August of 84. I was working in the drafting department as a detailed draftsman. Um, you know, they, they, I still had sleds through there, you know, to go race. So I was racing, I was working in the shop with people like Tubby Lund and Steve Homey. And um, it just kept, you know, the company was young. It, it was growing. They, uh, uh, we were doubling our production and, um, you know, got back into it then. Um, so I raced up till right in the 1987 and, and on El Tigre AFSs. Mm -hmm. Um, that was the independent front end that Dennis Solowski and Roger had designed. And um, 1987, Davey Thompson, who was one of the celebrities that, you know, you had Thompson, Colton, and Lofton in the 70s. And, you know, and Davey Thompson has always been an idol to me. Uh, he came and said, Joey, we need, uh, we need a race manager. And he says, I know you're only 27 years old and you want to keep racing. But he said, I think you would do good at it. It's part of marketing. And uh, we are, we can, we cannot afford to not go racing. We have to be out there. We've got to be racing. And so uh, I listened to David. Um, I got to run the the Jeep 500 that year in 1987. And that was my last race for a long time. And then I was focused 100% listening to guys like Davey Thompson and Dennis Solowski and Roger Skyme and Ole Tweet and, and really focused on being the race manager. We didn't have a big team. We knew we had a lot to, to get accomplished. But Oli said, the only way we're going to get uh, uh, up on top again is we've got to do it through racing. And we've got to dethrone Polaris off that pedestal. So uh, away we went and uh, got more guys to run with us, especially like the Hibberts and uh, people like that. Um, and we just kept every year building more and more and more. Um, in you know better sleds and what we learned on the racetrack and um it was it was really a fun time we had everything to gain nothing to lose there was a lot of people in the industry that thought we were gonna falter and fail and we'd be bankrupt again that was never ever in the back of our minds um, we knew we were going to be successful and it was uh, a lot of really good hard-working people yeah, I had I had wondered about that a little bit because, you know, prior to the to the gone fishing years, as they call it for for Arctic Enterprises at the time, um, you know, they had had a lot of success in racing. And a, that was kind of a cornerstone of Articat as a whole was the success on the racetrack. You guys coming in after Articat comes back, there had to have been. A, a fair amount of pressure for you guys going into that i would imagine you know i you definitely had the confidence and the and the talent both in in riders and in engineering staff to win on the track but you had to have, feel a little bit of pressure at that point right well yeah definitely we had the 
the institutional knowledge. We had the people that knew what it took. The only problem is, is when we were, the company was back up and running in 84, 85, 86, there wasn't big budgets. Mm -hmm. And uh, you even look at some of the first ads that we had, they were black and white because we couldn't afford color. Mm -hmm. But my first year as race manager, uh, you know, we had, there were six of us. I was still racing. We had Dave Wall. We had the Hibberts um, and uh, a couple other guys out there. You know, basically we gave away six sleds to six people and um, that's all we had. And, um, you know, but Oli, who was the head of marketing at the time said, we got to be out there and we, we're going to build a better sled, which we did. When things broke on the snowmobile at a race, they would get fixed in about a week and we'd be back out there testing. And then whatever broke again, got fixed. And it kept just, when you go racing, you can get development done so fast because you're pushing it to the edge. And um, it really catapulted pretty quickly. Yeah. And, and you had mentioned it a little bit earlier as well, just on the marketing side, you know, at, at this period of time, that's the premier form of marketing for, for any power sports manufacturer as a whole, but you know, slow, snowmobiling specifically, that's it. It was the epitome of win on Sunday, sell on Monday. That's, that's the time period where that really came to fruition. So for you guys, it was incredibly important to win on the track, despite the budget you had just because that's how the company stayed alive. Exactly. But, you know, once we've got some traction and uh, we started building more and more sleds and we were definitely seeing what we could get out of racing, um, the race budget increased. Uh, we got to do more. But we really had a lot of things that came right from racing. Um, you look at those first sleds in the late 80s, um, steel skis, pretty darn heavy. Um, you know, the shocks were pretty basic. But by the time we come around to 1990, we started getting gas shocks and chromoly A-arms. And then you even work your way into the early 90s everything that you've seen on the ZR, plastic skis, hydraulic brakes, the shape of the fuel tank, the, uh, the ETT tunnel. I mean, everything on that sled was a derivative of what was put on the race sled. And we made sure that all of those items went over to the regular production build. So a Pantera, a Jag, um, they had a lot of those same components and it made them good sleds. They were durable, they handled good, and, uh, our numbers showed it. We started building a lot of snowmobiles. Yeah. And it's not so much the case these days. I mean, the OEM still put effort into the racing program, obviously, but the engineering time and, and dollars that go towards the race sleds are not like it was back then, it seems, where there was so much emphasis put on racing that a lot of 
engineering time and validation time was was put in there to help improve the race sled, which then in turn obviously improves the consumer sled. So there was just obviously once you get over the hump and you start winning and the budgets increase, but it just keeps piling on and piling on that the race sled just keeps getting better and better every single year, you know? Definitely. Yeah. And I put a couple notes in here, but yeah, I mean, you, you touched on the, the 1990 EXT with the, with the Fox shocks out of the crate, which was, you know, really an industry first on the production side. And then that ZR440 for, for 93, which frankly dominates pretty much anything it got put in throughout the 90s. That that 440 was pretty much unstoppable throughout that time period. You know, it was it was a really exciting to be internal and in how everything came together. Um, you go back to that 1990 EXT special. The reason we did that is in 1989, Kirk finished, I think, eighth in the Jeep 500. And Doug Lamb was on a Yamaha, and he finished somewhere in that 12th, 13th position. There was an ad taken out by Polaris and said, Dear Kirk and Doug, uh, Articat and Yamaha must be very proud of you. You're the only two that finished amongst 18 other Polarises. And that was put in the Star Tribune in Minneapolis. And we took the that full page ad, we made copies, we put it on every door throughout the plant, engineering, offices, and that was a motivator for one year that we were going to build a sled and we were going to dethrone them. We were going to win some snowmobile races. So I can remember it was late March, spring of 89. Davy Thompson tells me, you got to have Roger go ride that sled with you to get him to bless it so that it can be built. So Roger and I went up in the forest, uh, not too far from his farm. And uh, we didn't go half a mile down the trail. And Roger pulls over and uh, he says, Joey, we're going to win the I-500 next year. This thing's good to go. And uh, history was made. Uh, got back to the trailer, loaded it up. Um, our biggest challenge was we had to get out the Fox shocks and get them to build those shock absorbers, which they had not built shocks for any production snowmobile. Mm -hmm. uh, we got out there, Kirk and I went. They didn't even really know what snowmobiles were. We had to bring a brochure. And um, we bought 2,000 shock absorbers from them to build 500 snowmobiles. And we told them we had to have those shocks in the fall uh, we had to pay a pretty good penny for them but uh boy when we went to the races that december we kicked off by winning at pine lake um of course kirk wins the i-500 in unbelievable fashion sturgeon wins eagle river in the stock class and all the other amateur races and pro races across the country that year that sled was dominant um so pretty exciting time. Um, unfortunately, the next two years, I wish we would have kept that same sled, but we were going to build a lighter uh, snowmobile. It was the Prowler chassis. Mm -hmm. 
it was not a real good race sled. And so we had kind of a hiccup for two years. And in 1992, kind of history repeats itself. Kirk's up front. He's, he's running with Jack Struthers and Doug Lasher in the Jeep 500. He breaks a spindle. Very disheartening. But in the long run, that was the best thing that could happen to us because then two gentlemen, Brian Nelson and Hubert Fixen, who were very close to Roger Skyme and all of us, um, we got on the phone at Thunder Bay. We called Roger and said, there will be a prototype built in the next two to three weeks, and we're going to get back on track. So the first ZR was built um, by the end of February, and we worked our tails off all that spring through the summer into the next fall, and we built that snowmobile in uh, mid to late November of 92 for the 93 season. And of course, uh, history was repeated itself. That was a really, really good piece of equipment. And uh, again, started winning a lot of races and started to get a lot more racers to come on board mm -hmm. with us. Because prior to that, there was a lot of red Indies out there. <laughs> Uh, you know, we'd go to races sometimes there'd be only two, one, two or three Articats and we'd be up against 30 Polarises. So we had our work cut out. But within a few years, it was a pretty good mix of uh, black and green sleds and uh, the red sleds. And it was, it was actually a really fun time. Uh, we had good friends from the Polaris camp. Yeah, we're competitors, obviously. But when you got two really strong brands, um, it was really exhilarating. It was fun. Yeah. It, you know, when I look back on the rich history of, of Articat in, in racing, I just, me personally, I, I think of two time periods. I just, I think of, you know, the, the snow pro teams, the all black oval sleds in the seventies dominant. And then I think of the mid to late nineties on the ZR platform, like just those two time frames are just in my mind, just pivotal and so iconic in the history of Articat. Yeah, it was. I mean, Snow Pro in the 70s was so big. Um, a lot of people called it, it was the circus. When the circus came to town, those guys were rock stars. So many of the factories had put a lot of effort into it. And, and you know, that oval racing was exciting. And uh, fortunately, when we got back and into the 90s there, you know, it was us, it was Polaris, then Skidoo got involved. Um, it it was pretty, you know, prob might not have been at the magnitude that Snowpro was in the 70s, but it was pretty darn good time. Yeah, and, and at this point in time too, you know, at the end of the 80s when basically every other manufacturer closes up shop you're you're losing the the mercuries of the world that were heavily competitive as well in ice oval so going into the 90s you pretty much had your key oems at that point in time so the sport in general was going to be smaller but the competitiveness was still there and the the popularity was still there for sure yeah exactly so let's fast forward a little bit 1999 given the opportunity to take over as product manager for snowmobiles, which is, you know, more on the whole good side of Articat, you're controlling development on vehicles and validation and things like that. 
were you a little reluctant to move into that role just because of your your heritage in racing or was it kind of a natural transition for you well you know that was another pretty interesting time in my career um prior to that in about oh that 96 range mark blackwell was hired he came from suzuki motorcycles he was he was the vice president of marketing at arctic cat um a lot of us knew who mark was because he was a motocross race star um and he was also Suzuki's race manager, and then he became their marketing guy. So I knew who Mark was. So when they hired Mark, it was like, wow, this is pretty cool. And uh, his background in racing really helped me. He coached me well. He taught me a lot of things um, that he learned over the years. And he could see towards the end there, like around that 99 era years, that the way we were growing, um, we did not have a product manager. He said, Joey, he said, I want you to step up and take this role. I understand it's hard to walk away from racing, but you've been doing it for about 15 years. And uh, I think you're going to do good at this. And like I listened to David back in, you know, in 1987, when I stepped away from actually racing and became race manager, I did the same thing. I listened to Mark and I stepped out of the race department and went over as product manager. Now, as product manager, you still keep an arm's length with the race department mm -hmm. because of, you know, the development, and all that. So it's not like I was totally removed. But I had a new role that I had to take care of and uh, worked very closely with all the engineers and, of course, with marketing. Um, so I really listened to Mark Blackwell and um, he was a good mentor, um, a fun guy to work for, very organized, very detailed. Um, even, you know, one time he, he arranged a meeting for me to visit with Roger DeCosta. Oh, no he way. He was a good friend of his. And uh, so I went to the Metrodome and I sat in a Suzuki trailer with DeCosta and kind of shared stories back and forth between snowmobiles and motorcycles. Um, I had an opportunity to go to AMA headquarters and I brought the uh, international snowmobile racing guys with me. And we sat down with AMA and we shared, again, the same things, the, the differences and the similarities between motorcycle racing and snowmobile racing. And Mark lined all that up. And it was just to make you more educated and knowledgeable of what you were doing. So uh, really thanked him for that. I hated to see him leave. It was a sad, sad day when he, uh, he got hired on to go over and run Victory Motorcycles for Polaris. Mm -hmm. And uh, tell you, there was a lot of tears shed um, because he, he was a really good guy and uh, fun to work for. So as you're kind of taking over more of the long-term strategy, vehicle strategy on the whole good side as product manager, those early 2000s were, were a very interesting time in the industry. There's a lot of there was a lot of engineering and kind of frankly groundbreaking stuff going on as far as snowmobiles go for design and things like that. 
you know, Skidoo comes out with the rev initially in 02 as the race sled comes into production. 03, this kind of rider forward geometry is becoming the go-to kind of setup to have on a sled. What were your biggest challenges developing sleds and pushing through during that time period? What were you, what were you up against? Well, you're absolutely right. There was a lot going on. Uh, you had Skidoo doing the rev. We were doing the Firecat. You had Yamaha doing the RX-1 with the, mm-hmm. you know, the four-stroke engine. Um, we were really focused on lightweight, nimble, making a rocket ship, go fast, uh, because our customers, you know, Articats have always been known to go fast, mm-hmm. especially the LT grays, things like that. Um, so you had three of the four really came out with some new innovative stuff that year. And I remember because we could see all the sales numbers, the Rev and the Firecat uh, in US and Canada were very, very close uh, in overall sales. There were, and there was a lot of sales for them sleds in that time frame. Um, the only downfall that I can see looking back, uh, the Firecat, and it, to this day, it's still known as this rocket ship. Mm-hmm. There's people that will come up to me and say, I got an 03 F7. It's the fastest thing mm-hmm. out there. And they were. But what they didn't do good they weren't the best at cornering and they were not the best at going through bumps. So were they a good complete race sled? No, they were a fast rocket ship and nobody really could beat them across the lake. But, uh, you know, they were more of that traditional sit back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it was, you've seen a lot happening at that point in time. Um, you know, and as as things progressed, you know, that the rider forward really got to be uh, a strong attribute of what the snowmobiles were going to turn into. Three, you know, and the other point was uh, three cylinders. Mm-hmm. Uh, the three cylinders kind of on their way out. Uh, we had to make a decision at that Firecat time. Do we build this new exotic lay down 700 twin cylinder engine that is designed for this new chassis or do we put our eggs in building a new thundercat engine and which would have been 1100 with power valves uh we actually at one time had a 500 triple it was done it was ready to go we had we basically scrapped those put our eggs into the laydown engine which you know, became a, a trademark of what we had in our machines. You know, we had a 500, we had a 600, we had a 700, an 800. I mean, just all those lay down engines tilted back to get that center of gravity uh, better for the driver. Um, and that's the direction we went. And uh, in the long term, it was a, it was the right idea because uh, the triples would not have, they were just too big mm-hmm. and heavy. Yeah, I I love triples just as much as everybody, but yeah, I I fully can can respect the decision not to do them. You're you're adding weight to the sled, the complexity of that many engines in your portfolio and this many part numbers in the catalog and it's 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 a nightmare. It really is. Yeah. You know, on them big triples, the pipes were so big. 
they had to go into a big muffler to make sound level. You know, when you open up the hood on a Thundercat, it's a massive set of three pipes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we had that 1100 with power valves on it. It was pretty impressive for horsepower numbers. Um, wasn't just a few years ago, uh, Jim Dimmerman mm-hmm. uh, got his hands on some of the prototype parts and uh, built one up. So uh, I think that, if I remember right, that thing was knocking on the door of 190 true horsepower. Oh my God. Yeah, it was it was pretty impressive. But then you come with a 700 twin lay down, about half the mm-hmm. weight, um, you know, cranking out 135 horsepower. And then you put that in a small lightweight chassis, you got a machine that's going to go across the lake 115, 116, 17 miles an hour. And it did. I mean, they come right out of the box and they would do that. Yeah, I, I look back and still the Firecats are my personal favorite sled of all time. I just remember my dad got me a uh, an F6 Nightfire edition when I was a kid. And I rode around town thinking I was hot shit, man. I was I thought I was the coolest guy in town. And <laughs> I still like that was that's one of the things that stood out to me during that time period. And like today you could never do it. There's not enough people buying sleds. It would be a nightmare on the production line. But you guys had a field day with LEs between like Nightfire and Team Arctic and Black Widow and Joker and all that stuff. I I loved those sleds personally. Yeah, and you know, it was a really exciting time. It was fun around the plant. Uh, when we came with the idea to have all these different decal packages on the different engine sizes, you know, and manufacturing was pulling their hair out going, what are you marketing guys doing? Well, we knew decals would sell mm-hmm. and people like to be, different um you know so you could get you know you remember them fighter yep, fire cats yep. you could get a silver one you could get a red one uh, we even had you patriots we had canadian editions the night fires always sold good because black arctic cats are mm-hmm. really hot um yeah we uh it was a a juggling act to keep all those decal packages straight but uh, it was a huge, huge success for us. And um, the dealers loved it. Customers loved it. Um, and we look forward to every year in our styling meetings, okay, what's the next year going to look like? And being a part of that, because I had my fingers in styling the sleds back in the 80s, so I stayed on the styling committee. Um, you know, you look forward to the styling meetings coming up every Wednesday. It was a fun time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I always peruse marketplace to see what, what fire cats are going for these days. I, I just bought a, a 2001 SRX 700. So now I have to wait a couple of years before I buy another sled, but, uh, the fire cats, you know, just a fire cat in general, a dime a dozen, but the guys who have those LEs know exactly what they're worth and they do not give them up easily. So hopefully, no, hopefully I, I could uh, get one, one of these days. Yeah. So you had the product manager role for 16 years or so. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, you were a part of a lot of different big sled changes and platform changes, but overall that time, what was your kind of favorite sled that you worked on? I mean, I obviously we spoke on the Firecat, 
the the M series was the first kind of true mountain sled. I mean, it won sled of the year with Snowgoer, which was the first time mountain sled ever done that. You guys had a lot of cool sleds, but you know, what was your favorite? Boy, it's hard to beat what we did on those ZRs. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was a whole collective team effort. Uh, but we, you go back to when Kirk broke the spindle and how we got it done so quick. And we made ZRs for, man, over 10 years, that chassis was the basis of what we were building. Uh, that was, you know, and we built big numbers of them. I would say that one's probably, you know, one of the favorites. Um, you know, and just the fact that whenever we put the effort into going racing and using race as a platform and, and Roger Skyme really preach that hard, um, we did good. Uh, when we didn't use that as the basis, if we got a little sidetracked or whatever, uh, that's when we stubbed our uh, thumb, our toe at times. And, uh, you know, the Twin Spar chassis through those mid 2000s is probably one of the nicest riding snowmobile people today will tell you. It's like, you know, riding in a, on a lazy boy mm -hmm. comforter. It's just perfect. But they weren't fast. Uh, they weren't the prettiest looking things. Uh, they were overweight. Um, but if you wanted to go ride down a trail and there's six to eight inch uh, bumps, the thing is just perfectly smooth. But we had to get back to our heritage. And... Uh, uh, the guys built a race sled in 2008 that was just for snowcrossing cross country. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, a lot of it was what they call temporary tooling, short-term parts, mm -hmm. not high volume, but it was used as a basis mm -hmm. to see how the geometry and everything worked in the engine layout and the clutching and the brakes and all that. And that then became the 2012 pro cross mm -hmm. and boy that was that was a fun sled um it got back it was fast it looked good it handled good it had good brakes um and the styling was phenomenal um young stylist still at arctic today nathan blumker uh, designed it up and um it really caught the eye. I remember we showed it to some focus groups early on and they just drooled over the look. So we knew we had a winner. Um, but prior to that, the twin spar didn't have people <laughs> drooling over it. Um, but we knew that that pro cross, um, and then it had good success on the racetrack. So then the guys could take, they didn't use the same parts but they could use a lot of the same design and ideas um, to build that sled. And uh, of course that's what, you know, they're still building up to this day. Yeah. My, my, my trail sled currently is a, is a 2012 crossfire. So I still really enjoy the pro cross. And then my wife has a, she has a 07 F8. So it's twin spar. And yeah, it's, it's not, it's not a looker, but it's, definitely the most comfortable snowmobile i've ever ridden on in my life so i can i can fully appreciate the struggle you guys had with that sled when you're like hey i know you don't like it but it god it's so comfortable 
So I, I feel you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh man. So in, in 2012, you actually got inducted into, into the snowmobile hall of fame, which a lot of times, you know, we see a lot of racers and, and industry guys get in there and, and frankly, Joy, I mean, you're, you're just as worthy as the next guy, but did it come as a surprise for you at all? Or was that kind of in the plan for you? You know, it was, it was a huge surprise. Um, I had the opportunity to attend the very first Hall of Fame uh, inductations, 1988 Eagle River, and I believe it was 10, 10 riders. You know, you had the Davy Thompsons, the Larry Coltons, the Bob Eastmans, the Von Duhamels, the Roger Jansons, I mean, Mike Trapp, all of them. And I remember watching, I mean, my God, these are the heroes. These are the people, these are the guys that you read in the snowmobile magazines growing up. And they're all, you know, they were rock stars and they were bigger than life. And uh, I just remember, man, this thing is cool. Never, ever did I think that 24 years later, whatever it is, that I would uh, have the opportunity uh, to be inducted. Um, so when I got the call and, um, you know, they said, you know, ba you know, and I said, well, why did I get it? They said, well, you look at your racing, your race manager career and what you did for Articat and uh, the industry and all of that. And they just started, you know, putting out the highlights and the bullet points. And it's like, you know what I did to me, it was just a job and, a career and it was my passion and that's what I wanted to do and uh, that's how I got in the snowmobile hall of fame so uh, pretty proud of it um, you know it, it goes by quick um, again going all the way back to 1988 watching them and the next thing I know it's 2012 and getting inducted yeah it's it's got to be wild like when you just kind of take a take a second and and step back and, and you just remember kind of those those early memories of of falling in love with snowmobiling and you fast forward to being in the hall of fame with building a, a racing career and then a, a product career at an oem it's it's got to be wild just to look back on yeah it was um made a lot of good friends um miss a lot of them and uh but it was uh we again we worked hard at it and we had everything to gain and nothing to lose in those early years and uh, wouldn't, wouldn't trade it for anything. Awesome. So one of the topics that has been pretty hot as of late in the snowmobile industry, Yamaha announced that after model year 25, they will be withdrawing from doing any new sleds in, in the snowmobile market, which is, which is a big blow for sure. I mean, they didn't sell a ton of sleds, but anytime we lose a manufacturer, it's a big deal. And you know, if, if you're in the industry, I wouldn't say we saw the writing on the wall, but it's not really a surprise for any of us. It's just still kind of a bummer. But when you were at Articat as product manager, you were a big part of that initial partnership, the manufacturing partnership. What are you kind of able to share? unless you're bound by NDAs, but what are you able to share about kind of how that 
discussion started and maybe some of the challenges and wins you guys had working with Yamaha? You know, it uh, here's kind of another racing comes into this. Um, oh boy, it's got to be the late 2000s there on that 09, 2010, I would say. Um, Jim Kettinger gives me a call. Jim Kenninger was race manager at Yamaha through the 80s and into the 90s there. Um, good friend of mine, good competitor. Um, and he had moved on. He was running the Manaqua Yamaha test facility. And so we would see each other at a lot of industry functions, uh, things like that. But he had called me one day and they were, Yamaha was very interested if we would entertain the idea of selling, licensing, royalty, whatever, of our ACT drive. Mm -hmm. Now, if you know the ACT drive system and way the Yamahas were built at that time with the pipes coming on top of the tunnel, the ACT drive would be a perfect fit because there is no jack shaft to go across the tunnel over to a drop case. And uh, so I said, well, Jim, you know what? I will check with the superiors and find out. Um, at the same time, I knew that Suzuki was going to be getting out of developing engines. And I asked Jim, I said, do you think Yamaha would sell us the Nitro three-cylinder 1049cc? He said, I'll go ask. He called back in probably two to three days, and he said, uh, they want to talk. So uh, we were heading to Japan. We usually go there twice a year and meet with Suzuki. And um, at the end of our visit with Suzuki, we took the train the next day. We went the other direction for about 20 minutes. We went to Yamaha headquarters, and we met three gentlemen at the Yamaha facility and uh, walked into the room. There was three of us and three of them. And uh, Roger Skyme was with and another gentleman by the name of Bryce Abrahamson who handled all of our Suzuki and foreign purchasing. And uh, so we're sitting across the table from a competitor. And next thing you know, the main man, his name was Nabi Shirashi. We started talking racing and Nabi had done test riding with Mario Ito and he went on to be the general manager of what they call the RV division. So next thing you know, Roger and Nabi are sharing stories from the early days and the tension went away. And it was the coolest thing to experience that here these guys had raced against each other and were competitors and all of a sudden uh, we were laughing talking and, uh, about old snowmobiles and race stories and uh, the relationship was created then just from that so kind of a, a neat deal a tie-in to racing from uh, from the old days it's it's really cool to to look at that relationship and how it worked because i know a lot of the a lot of the pr at the time was hey just take the competitive nature out of this 
these are just two companies that like snowmobiles and are trying to help each other build sleds so that the market can flourish. And I think that is still how a lot of us, maybe some of the Yamaha guys are salty, you know, the diehard Yamaha guys are salty about it. But for a lot of us, that's how we're always going to look at this relationship was it helped both of them build better sleds for the market overall. You can't argue it. Oh, definitely. Um, you know, the one thing that Mr. Shirashi told us that day in his, you know, Japanese English, we know quality, we know engines. And he said, you live in cold, you know, snowmobiles, you know, racing. And they had done their homework. They knew who we were. Uh, we knew who they were. And uh, it was a really good fit when we reported back to our CEO, Chris Toomey, what they wanted to do, because once we signed the agreement to buy the three cylinder, they turned around immediately said, um, you build a snowmobile. And we were shocked. And uh, they really did help us um, clean up our act. Mm -hmm. because they know quality and it wasn't any magic pill or anything uh it was just to you know get the fundamentals right and do uh, uh, some good processes and uh, you look back at the first uh, viper that came out you know we had a better uh, procross 7000 and they had a, a really good viper so mm -hmm. it helped both of us in the long run um, there was there was tension at first between engineering teams and other departments and things but over time and it didn't take long uh it really got to be a fun relationship we shared things whether it was parts service warranty uh shipping and distribution we each got to learn more and more um i, I would say you know my racing career and all that as a race manager was very fun and exciting. You know, how could it not be if you're the coach of, uh, you know, a professional team, it's pretty neat. But the Yamaha part of my career was very, very interesting. Uh, and it was challenging. And uh, I never thought I would get to do something like that. And uh, I really appreciate it. it. It was fun. Um, Jim had retired. So a gentleman by the name of Masa Saito had come in and I had knew Masa from prior and uh, Masa and I got to be very, very good friends. In fact, I will be seeing Masa this year at Heydays. Um, he loves to know how my kids are doing in racing and uh, spent a lot of time with Masa. I had a, we got a lot of good stories and uh, he used to treat us to some really nice restaurants when we went to Japan. It was fun. <laughs> well, that's that that's awesome. And I like to hear that side of it, because like I said, people, the keyboard warriors are are having a good time right now, just criticizing Yamaha. But at the end of the day, you know, it's a business decision for them to leave. And I guarantee you there's just as many people within Yamaha that are equally as bummed that they're pulling out of the sport for sure. Absolutely. You know, I hate to see them exit the business. 
Um, there's a lot of diehards out there for over 50 years. I mean, I seen it. I experienced it of the Yamaha faithful and got to know a lot of the, you know, the sleds that they built in the past. And I got to meet the guys that designed the snow scoot and the phaser and all of that. Um, you know, this, it's not going to be a good deal to grow the sport of snowmobiling them leaving. Um, but when you lose a lot of the passion and the heritage just because age and time goes on, you know, the dollars and cents take over and then you get a tough business decision. And if the numbers aren't there to support it, um, yeah, it's, uh, we knew it was probably going to happen. At least I did. Mm -hmm. Uh, I hate to see it happen. Um, but you know, things change. And unfortunately this is one of them. Well, kind of transitioning to something a little happier and more positive, Joey, uh, at this point in time, you're just over a year into your, your new role working at Argo. I mean, between, between Argo and, uh, and Altos central boiler, you guys probably have what, maybe 90% of the former Articat employees over the last 10 years. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, Alto's uh, center boiler is just up the road, 35 miles from us. There's quite a collection of ex-Articat people there. Um, it was very exciting um, that when Brad Darling, who's originally from Canada, mm -hmm. went through all the channels of his family was a dealer. They still are a dealership. Uh, Brad was, you know, uh, a DSM, an RSM, a national sales manager, and just worked his way up. And, uh, you know, he, he was our boss at Articat for several years. Mm -hmm. And when he left Articat to go to Argo, we knew things were going to happen there because mm -hmm. he had good vision. He had really good experience. He told me to hang on, be, you know, just be patient. We're going to do some things here. And finally he called one day and he said, uh, I'd like to have you come on board. So got to sit down with Brad, looked at the strategic plan. And once I got to see that, I was like, I am sold. This is going to be pretty darn neat. Argo had been around for 50 years mm -hmm. and they always made, you know, six wheelers and then they developed into eight wheelers. Well, now you look at Argo today, we've got ATVs of various sizes. We got side by side. We've made some major improvements to the six and eight wheelers and new technology to them. We even got an, uh, an eight wheeler that's all electric. And now we've got this new big tired, mm -hmm. <laughs> I call it the monster, the Sasquatch, which uh, is pretty darn impressive. And uh, we've got 30 out of 32 people at our facility at Argo USA in Thief River Falls that had been at Articat, uh, and it's everywhere from engineers, service and warranty, publications, you know, the manuals, testing. Uh, everybody knows everybody, and it's like putting together an all-star baseball team. Mm -hmm. You know that everybody can do their job, and uh, it's really exciting. A lot of people say, geez, it looks like it's the old days of Arctic. Well, kind of has some of the same flavor and taste, um, and it again, it's fun vehicles. Yeah, they don't go across the snow 100 miles an hour, but 
pretty darn exciting when you talk to some of the dealers and customers of what they do with these, whether it's hunting or commercial or power companies or pipelines, whatever. When they're outdoors using these, it's pretty neat and uh, it's fun. It's uh, I'm looking forward to it. Um, you know, probably going to keep working here for a little bit longer, but uh, down the road, a guy's going to want to retire, but I'm going to have fun while we're doing this. Yeah, I, I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to to ride in a in a Sherp last last summer when I was up there visiting you guys. And I was not gonna lie, I was a little bit at first like I, I don't get it. It's really cool, but I, I just don't get it. And then I rode in one, I was like, Oh, oh, I get it. I I fully get it now. So yeah, I, I encourage anybody who hasn't ever ridden in a, a Sherp or a traditional Argo, they're they're really cool pieces of kit. Like they're they're really neat. Yeah, and you know, um, when Brian Dick came on board um, with us, he was be the head engineer for our new Sasquatch, which is very similar to a Sherp, but we've done some pretty major changes. We mm -hmm. put a steering wheel in it, put an automatic transmission, and we put a state-of-the-art cab on it that's got mostly glass wrapped around and if you thought the Sherp was fun to drive, when you see this, you're going to be blown away. Oh man, I I, I got to get. I had I had the opportunity to take some sales guys out last <laughs> week, and they were like, "Oh my lord, <laughs> this is the ultimate." Um, I guess you could call it a man toy, but it's. Uh, I know a lot of ladies that would love to get it because it's like driving their SUV. It's mm -hmm. just got a steering wheel and automatic transmission. Man. And it'll go through eight feet of water and cattails and mud and climb up on the ice. And it's just, uh, whoever thought there would be a vehicle like that down the road. It's, it's kind of like, it's basically just like the world is your, is your sandbox when you're in that thing. Yeah. Like anything's possible. Yep. No doubt. Uh, so how do, you know, I guess, um, you know, came from humble beginnings, got to watch, Artco, Articat, Grow, um, you know, a lot of the the things that happened over there, you know, there was a lot of the a lot of the right moves and there was some wrong moves, no doubt. Um, you know, everything's not going to be perfect. I made a lot of good friends. Um, but, you know, for me, myself, you know, uh, my career was kind of a dream come true. You know, going back, sitting on those snowmobiles, an eight-year-old boy wanting to be on Arctic Cats, got to do it, and it just grew into many other things. Um, the Yamaha relationship was very rewarding and, and outstanding, I guess you could say. It was really cool. Learning their culture, uh, going to Japan, seeing uh, how they live and how they built things, it was pretty exciting. And then now kind of restarting, rejuvenated here at Argo. It's that's uh, a pretty good time. For those, uh, like, I don't know how many actually know, but the the building you guys are in too, Joey, has some has some cool heritage with Articat, doesn't it? You know, it actually has heritage for Thief River Falls. It is the original building that DigiKey started in. Okay. And then when they... Oh, yeah, when they outgrew that, and now they are a monstrosity of of a, of a company. Mm -hmm. Black Magic went in there, and I was part of working for Oli Tweet when we 
wanted to have an aftermarket and it wasn't a division of Arctic. It was a totally separate mm -hmm. company, but we needed that for our dealers and our customers. So Tim and Roxanne Berg uh, started Black Magic. We uh, worked in association with them so that our customers could get performance products. And Black Magic ran out of that building for many years. And when Argo decided to have Argo USA, uh, that building was basically remodeled. Um, and now it's, you know, we've got nice offices inside and the colors are orange and gray, which are Argo uh, colors. And uh, we've got a nice place for all of us to work. We've got a nice shop and uh, we'll probably have to be doing some expansion down the road. Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic facility in there. And I just when I got to to tour it last summer, I remember just yeah being so impressed with with the offices in that space. And then I went out back in uh, kind of your engineering room and there was a door and on the floor is just a bunch of carbide and stud marks. And I was like, oh, if these walls could talk, man, if these walls could talk. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it uh, used to make a lot of trips over there. Uh, we had a lot of racers that would come and compete in the 500 and things like that. And uh, Blackmagic would build and prepare their sleds. A lot of our Scandinavian racers uh, would base out of there because they had some really good mechanics over at Blackmagic. And those guys could build good sleds. Uh, I don't think one of the Scandian, Scandinavians, whether they were from Norway, Sweden, Finland, we even had Russians. They all finished. We were a perfect thousand percent of finishing that race uh, by the guys that built their sleds out of there. Yeah, it was a it was a phenomenal program for sure. And I even see every now and again on on Marketplace or eBay, there's some like like a Black Magic hat or a Black Magic hoodie, and it's it's way too expensive. But oh, it'd be so cool to to own a piece of that history. <laughs> Definitely. So we'll wrap it up here for you, Joey. Just a couple quick questions for you. I think I know the answer because you talked a lot about your, your Yamaha relationship, but coolest accomplishment for you throughout your career. Boy, uh, you know, getting inducted in the Hall of Fame was definitely a surprise. Um all of the success and the friends uh, from the Team Arctic, uh, I really got a rank up there. Um, you know, Mark Blackwell pointed out, he said, you became a race manager. Um, you know, you weren't just handed this big budget and this unbelievable large engineering and all that. You, you learned with the guys and everybody to, to grow it. You, you came from humble beginnings. Uh, so I think that was pretty darn, uh, if that felt big to me, um, that, you know, cause you know, the company had gone bankrupt mm -hmm. and it was starting all over. And so we got to grow it every, you know, everybody worked hard. And, uh, so I would say that's probably the most memorable of seeing that, and being a part of uh, the growth and the expansion, um, those you know those early years, uh, the late '80s and all through them, the '90s there. 
favorite sled of all time from any brand and whether you worked on it or not favorite sled of all time boy it's pretty hard not uh not to fall in love with the zrs i mm-hmm. mean uh love them early lt grays um but those early zrs they just being a, again being a part of it but they did so many i mean they had good brakes they had good suspension they were fast they were comfortable you could uh, get around uh, you know like the, the way we made the gas tank it was easy to crawl around the sled roger skyim really pushed that hard you got to be comfortable you got to be one on the machine so i would say the zrs um definitely would be my favorite we even my son we bought a uh, uh, a 96 580. Mm-hmm. We rebuilt it. Uh, it's in our garage. <laughs> uh, I don't let it out a whole lot because I want to keep it as because we put a lot of effort in it to get it back to pristine. Uh, but boy, it sure is fun to ride. We we take it out about a couple times a winter. <laughs> yeah. It- it makes me feel old at this point, Joey, because I, I still go to a lot of the, the vintage shows down here in the cities. And the fact that now, like, 95 to 2000 is a class that you can register your vintage. Like, I'm not vintage. I'm 27. But apparently, sleds from that era are now considered vintage. Yeah. <laughs> you get much older, those of sleds. And then you start, you know, you got a lot of mechanical issues you got to fix. So it's kind of nice to have EFI, mm-hmm. good brakes, good clutches, good shock absorbers. Uh, then you got a pretty nice snowmobile. Um, trying to get an old 69 Panther to run. Oh, <laughs> they run for a little bit, but sooner or later they're going to break down. Yeah, what's what's the old mantra? It was like, because I, I have a vintage sled myself too, but it was like, for every like one hour you ride, you got three hours fixing it or something like that. Like, that's how it was. I still can remember my dad popping cleats by hand on that 68 Panther. And I was told to hold the trouble light and, you know, just stand there and help him because we were in a garage with a dirt floor and uh, he was popping those rivets, putting those cleats back on. And it was like, and I look back and I go, man, dad, you must really wanted to ride that thing bad. And of course I did too, but uh, I was too small and weak. I couldn't squeeze the rivet, uh, the rivet gun. <laughs> so it sounds like then, Joey, that you, your humble beginnings, you started as a flashlight holder and you made it all the way to the Hall of Fame. Is that right? Yeah, I, I would. Yeah, that would be true. <laughs> yeah, oh, definitely. Oh, well, Joey, again, thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. I knew you had a cool story and I'm I'm really grateful that you shared it with us and, and the listeners. I think I think everybody's really going to enjoy it. So thank you again so much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it. And keep that passion going. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Joey. All right. Bye bye. Joey Hallstrom on the Carbide Podcast. You know the expression, they just don't make them like they used to? I feel like Joey himself fits into that mantra pretty well. He's been involved in snowmobiling one way or another almost since its inception and managed to take his passion and become one of the most influential people in the sport. 
even if he would never say that himself. Huge thanks again to Joey for giving us the time. He owes me absolutely nothing, but when I emailed him asking him to come on, he was all about it. He's just that type of person. Thank you, listeners, for your continued support. I've been having an absolute blast with these interviews. Hopefully you guys are too. Be sure to subscribe, follow us on Instagram, and as always, take care. Take care.